Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcast. The conference took place in University College Dublin on the 2nd and 3rd of September 2011 and saw over 50 speakers from Ireland and beyond come together to share their ideas in an interdisciplinary forum. In association with HistoryHub.ie, the majority of the papers are available for podcasting via the HistoryHub.ie website and on iTunes. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Stephen Kelly, a PhD candidate in English at University College Dublin. He is interested in cultural history in Ireland from the early modern period, with an emphasis on the use of culture in the colonial process. His dissertation is on Dublin's Theatre Royal at Smock Alley during the reign of Charles II, focusing on the role of the theatre and its drama in shoring up support for the Stuart regime in Ireland. His paper is entitled This Shining Circle, Castle and Playhouse in Restoration Dublin. In his epilogue to The Adventures of Five Hours, performed before Charles II at Whitehall Palace, London in 1662, the playwright Samuel Tuke addresses the king directly with these words. We've passed the lords and commons and are come at length, dread sir, to hear your final doom. Tis true, your vassals, sir, may vote the laws. Their sanction comes from your divine applause. This shining circle then will all sit mute till one pronounce from you Le Roy, Le Vute. Here the playhouse is cleverly presented as a kind of parody of the legislature, with the play as a bill that has to be passed by both Houses of Parliament before gaining final approval from the King. It clearly implies that members of the audience at at this private court performance were also the holders of executive power, but with the King ultimately in absolute control. As events later on in Charles II's reign were to prove, there were many in the House of Commons who would have contested this rather flattering interpretation of the King's constitutional position. Of interest to us, however, is the indication that at this performance, the court and audience were one and the same. It is this overlap between the executive and the theatre that is investigated in this paper, though not in the context of the court theatres of Whitehall, but rather of the public theatre of Restoration Dublin. By examining the relationship between the colonial administration of Dublin Castle and the city's Theatre Royal at Smock Alley, we will arrive at a clearer understanding of the role of the public playhouse in Ireland in the reign of Charles II, particularly with regard to the Stuart colonial project. Dublin's first uh, public playhouse was established earlier in the 17th century around 1635, under the auspices of the, of the then Lord Chief Deputy, Thomas Wentworth, later the Earl of Strafford. This playhouse, called the New Theatre and situated on Werberg Street, was managed by John Ogilby, the Master of the Rebels for the Kingdom of Ireland. As holder of this uh, post, Ogilby was responsible for the provision of masks and entertainments for the Lord Lieutenant's Viceregal Court, Thus, the responsibilities of the office itself implied a close association between the castle and and the city's playhouse. The Werberg Street Theatre was short-lived, however. During the political unrest of 1641, Ogilby fled Dublin. According to the biographer John Aubrey, he narrowly escaped being, quote, blown up at the castle of Raffarnham near Dublin. It's obviously Raffarnham. In the years that followed, his playhouse was neglected, and in Ogilby's own words in a later petition, 
quote, fell to utter ruin by the calamities of those times. He claimed to have lost over £2,000 in the process. With the restoration in 1660, Ogilby was free to return to Dublin to take up his old post. Once again, he was to be responsible for entertainment for the viceregal court and had a monopoly on the operation of a public theatre. He had prospered during the interregnum as a translator, publisher and mapmaker and would have had little difficulty in securing capital for the construction of the new playhouse, which was situated on Smock Alley, now Essex Street West, and was officially named the Theatre Royal. And this is a diagram representing what it may have looked like on, on the outside. His commissioning for the planning and choreographing of the triumphal procession through London for Charles II's 1660 coronation indicates his position of favour in the new regime. Ogilvy's description of the event was published the following year. As the leading personality of the Theatre of Restoration Dublin, Ogilvy was closely identified with the restored Stuart regime and could be counted on to be sympathetic to its interests. Moreover, the preeminent personality of the Stuart administration in Ireland, James Butler, the first Duke of Ormond, was, like Charles II, a keen patron of the theatre. Ormond, Ireland's Lord Lieutenant for much of Charles II's reign, was extravagant, flamboyant, and enjoyed public spectacles such as plays and masks. Like the King at the two London Theatres Royal, uh, Ireland's Lord Lieutenant sat conspicuously in the Royal Box directly opposite the stage. Published texts of Smock Alley plays were described as being acted before the Duke. For instance, in his dedication to uh, Lady Mary Cavendish, Ormond's daughter, for the published text of Agrippa, King of Alba, the playwright John Dancer describes the play as one that, quote, your most illustrious father has often seen, and as I have a little reason to hope, not without some delight, upon the stage in Ireland. It seems then that the play was performed several times in the presence of Ormond at Smock Alley and possibly elsewhere, and that he was not expected to enjoy it any the less for having already seen it. At times, however, Ormond's enthusiasm for the theatre seems to have waned. In the summer of 1665, in a letter to Viscount Conway and Kilolta, Sir George Rawdon observes that Ormond was playing bowls at, at Oxmantown, quote, which spoils the playhouse. The theatre, so closely <coughs> identified with the state, benefited from the Duke's attendance. This is borne out by the following record of his social calendar for the 3rd of May, 1670. It reads, Tuesday in the afternoon, His Excellency went to the theatre where the loyal subject by Beaumont and Fletcher, first played in 1680, was acted. The actors, most of them, act very well. They want good clothes. But His Excellency's bounty and the advantage they will have by his countenance will soon make them both, them and the scenes, very fine. As Lord Lieutenant, Ormond's position within the theatre audience was particular. When he attended, his presence was a central and significant element in, in, the, in the occasion. On one level, the theatrical event was about him, 
like an English Tudor monarch, the king's representative was being witnessed seeing a play by his Irish subjects. Thus, Ormond's role was that of the royal spectator, identified by Stephen Orgel in his illusion of, The Illusion of Power, at the court theatres of, of 16th century London. The audience response was to the relationship between the drama and the monarch, rather than the drama alone. The other key player in 17th century Irish public life, Roger Boyle, the first Earl of Orrery, was not only an enthusiastic supporter of the art form, but during the Restoration became a highly regarded playwright. Orrery as the general was essentially an exercise in explaining how a loyal military commander can find himself fighting for a usurper against the legitimate monarch. He carried the stigma of having held high office in the Cromwellian administration and he used his dramatic endeavours as a vehicle for political rehabilitation. He clearly succeeded in achieving this rehabilitation as the grant of his earldom and his appointment to important political offices such as the Lord President's Presidency of Munster indicate. His enthusiasm for his own dramatic work can be seen in a letter to Viscount Conway and Cololta written in July 1666. He writes, If we meet at London, you will see a play acted which I writ by the King's command. I call it Edmund the Black Prince. And if ever I writ anything fit for the theatre, this play is it. Orrery is a good illustration of the interconnection between uh, theatre and politics at the time. Other playwrights of the age, such as Tuke, Howard and Dryden, were also well-connected in court circles. His prominent political position gave him the influence to have his his plays staged, and in turn, his dramatic career helped him to gain favour with the king. Orrery shared an an interest in literature with another well-regarded writer of the period, Mrs Catherine Phillips, an English poet who spent over a year in Dublin in the early 1660s. During her stay, Phillips became part of fashionable Dublin society and developed uh, uh, friendships with other gentlefolk with an interest in poetry and philosophy as well as drama. She wrote an an English translation of Corneille's Pompey that was staged uh, in Smock Alley's first season and was supported financially by Orrery through uh, the gift of money to pay for, for the costumes. Phillips's Pompey reflected the mood of the Stuart authorities in the early years of the Restoration <coughs> and emphasised the importance of reconciliation between parliamentary and royalist factions in the wake of the English civil wars. The production was clearly an important social event for the viceregal court. Phillips died not long after her return to England the following year, so her connection to Dublin was never to be renewed. Another English playwright with an Irish connection, John Dancer, was from a more humble social background and came to Ireland as a trooper in the service of the Duke of Ormond. Unlike Phillips and Orrery, Dancer was not part of the elite coterie of Dublin Castle. However, he owed his literary success in part to Ormond's patronage. Thus, his connections to the castle gave him the opening he needed for success on the Smock Alley stage. 
Another of Ormond's protégés, the English royalist barrister and poet John Wilson, similarly benefited from the Duke's approval. Late in 1666, he was appointed Recorder of Londonderry, a prominent judicial position in that city. Either the following uh, season or five years after that, in the view of Kathleen Lesko in the uh, Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, his play Belfagor, Belf, sorry, Belfagor, or The Marriage of the Devil, premiered at Smock Alley. For Dublin's high society, the public theatre was an important element in the city's social life. The status of such people, wealthy landowners and holders of high office in the colonial administration, was underscored by their sitting in the most expensive seats uh, in the first tier of boxes on on ground level that formed uh, a U-shape around the pit. And this is a a diagram representing what the interior of the playhouse may have looked like. So you can see it's really very small. And, of course, that there would be the, uh, where Ormond would have sat if he, had he attended the royal box opposite the stage. Um, audience members outside the exclusive social circle of Dublin Castle sat uh, in, in the middle gallery here, um, upper gallery here, or the pit itself. The upper gallery contained the cheapest seats, and was occupied by people of a lower social status, but who were still uh, able to pay a shilling for the evening's entertainment. The equivalent of half a day's wages for a craftsman in 1670. Through entertaining a wide social spectrum under one roof, Smock Alley provided a, a kind of bridge between the vice-regal court and the city's middle classes, the shopkeepers and tradesmen, who are so important to the kingdom's expanding economy. These citizens attended the playhouse in increasing numbers during the Restoration period and, as in London, were a powerful group both politically and economically. The public playhouse allowed them to partake of the kind of theatre that had been associated with private court productions before the interregnum. Smock Alley had state-of-the-art stage technology with a proscenium arch and changeable painted scenes that achieved a perspective effect through the clever use of side wings that receded uh, in reducing size. This was the the latest kind of Italian stage stage technology. It would have been uh, the the very best of its its time. While the Smock Alley Theatre was open to the wider citizenry, its most important function was to entertain the vice-regal court at Dublin Castle, allowing the kingdom's most influential and powerful subjects to attend plays in comfort. With a modern, purpose-built and luxuriously decorated playhouse, the newly established ascendancy could behave like a real princely court. The Anglo-Irish elite liked to see themselves as cultured and sophisticated. Catherine Phillips's Society of Friendship consciously cultivated an air of philosophical and literary accomplishment. Through Phillips's Pompey, a number of leading members of Dublin society were involved in creating rather than just watching the drama. The Earl of Roscommon wrote the, plo- wrote the prologue and Sir Edward Deering wrote the epilogue. Other friends of, of Phillips were involved in composing the musical settings and officers of the garrison took part 
in a military dance at the end of Act 3. I wonder what the dance would have looked like. It sounds an extraordinary uh, idea. Um, uh, This dance follows a tradition of the court masque in which the audience took part in the performance. Uh, The close involvement of some vice-regal courtiers in the production of Pompey forged a link between the castle and the theatre from the beginning that aided its success in the years that followed. The theatre provided good (coughs) opportunities for socialising and provided a setting where it was possible to meet the Lord of Tenant or other important people. In this way, Smock Alley played a significant part in the cohesion of early Restoration society and helped to establish uh, the identity and social position of the ascendancy. The state's direct involvement in the licensing of the playhouse, including the grant of a monopoly to its operator, clearly resulted in the kingdom's political authorities having an influence on the drama that was staged. In London, the master of the revels uh, in England, Sir, Sir Henry Herbert, was responsible for the censorship of plays. He took his role seriously, and plays staged by the London uh, licensees were, on occasion, banned from the stage if they were deemed to have caused offence. His censorship of John Wilson's 1663 comedy, The Cheats, can be seen in in an extant manuscript prompt book of the play uh, that's now in Oxford. At Smock Alley, Ogilby was, was both the master of the revels and the licensee of the playhouse, but he still appears to have been generally cautious and conservative in his choice of plays for production. There there was no other crown official to share the blame with if any play caused offence. Obviously, he would have been unlikely to willingly antagonise the Dublin Castle authorities. However, there was a real danger that the sexual and profane references in some restoration drama would cause offence to middle-class Dubliners with non-conformist sympathies. The Presbyterian minister, Patrick Adair, noted with approval that, in 1669, the Smock Alley Theatre was closed by Ormond's successor as Lord of Tenant, Lord John Roberts. Roberts was a Presbyterian sympathiser, so his hostility to the theatre is not surprising. However, his ability to have Smock Alley closed down, presumably against the wishes of a significant and powerful section of the population, is remarkable and is an indication of the change in atmosphere at the vice-regal court uh, during his short tenure. That's, that's actually the only representation we have of, of, the, of Smock Alley uh, on, on the map uh, at, the, at the time. Uh, uh, Roberts was replaced by John, Lord John Barclay the following year, allowing Smock Alley to reopen, but towards the end of Ormond's final term as Lord Lieutenant, its fortunes declined. In a prologue from 1681 or 1682, the speaker bemoans the poor state of the theatre and complains that wit was not received well in Ireland and that, quote, like toads, it ill agrees with the Irish soil. Considering the collapse of the King's Company in London in 1682, its merging with the Duke's Company to form the, uh, the, the United Company, it should come as no surprise that the Smock Alley Theatre was also ailing by the early 80s. I will conclude by observing that, at least in the earlier part of Charles II's reign, 
the Smock Alley Theatre was an important institution in the social lives of the Anglo-Irish elite associated with Dublin Castle. (coughs) It served to shore up support for the Stuart administration in Ireland and aided the colonial process and anglicisation of the kingdom. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this HistoryHope.ie podcast. You can find many more podcasts by visiting the HistoryHope.ie website.